Listening to the coffee hour, I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. So I know we just got into the February issue, but we are now getting into the March issue of the Lutheran Witness and looking forward to digging into God's Word and searching the scripture in the March issue of the Lutheran Witness. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. You can find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. Joining us today, the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of the Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, welcome back. Thank you, sir. Good to be back so soon. So soon. Yeah, we are glad to have you back. Yeah, it's like, uh, what, twice in in a week or in two weeks yeah. that we get to spend some time with you and uh, study God's words. We are taking a look at Searching the Scriptures in the March issue of The Lutheran Witness. By grace, you have been saved. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to be studying today. Sure. So last... Uh week or so, we wrapped up the first chapter of Ephesians, which was this long, wind, long-winded long prayer from St. Paul, a uh, fantastic prayer. And we're picking up today uh, what might be considered one of the banner passages of Lutheranism and the Lutheran Reformation, in particular, Ephesians. Uh, the study for today is Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, but of course the passages that many people know are Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, uh, 8 through 10. So uh, we're picking this up. He, This is the four by grace you have been saved passage. Um, the Reformation's uh, cry that this uh, reflects is the sola gratia, by grace alone you have been saved. We're of course going to get to that in the study today, but there's a lot here to kind of dig through. As usual. Yep. All right, shall we dig in? Let's do it. Question one, read Ephesians 2 verse 1. What type of death does St. Paul discuss here, and what implications does this have for the Christian life? So, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins, dot, dot, dot. Um, so, uh, what is Paul talking about here? He is talking about death. Uh, one of the most helpful ways of describing this, um, of course, we talk about spiritual death, but uh, uh, Pastor Winger in his commentary on Ephesians talks about how this is obviously a non-literal death, but it is not figurative, it is, in fact, a real death, uh, but it is so. It, it is a not a literal death. In other words, he's not talking about the fact that the Ephesians were physically dead, laying all over the ground, uh, but in fact, they were dead in in their sins. Right. So we refer to this as original sin. Uh, a good example of this is the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son comes home and the father, you know, hikes up his his uh, his his I don't want to say skirt, but hikes up his clothes and goes and runs to his son and then and then hugs him. He says, "My son was dead and is now alive." Obviously, he's not talking about a son being physically, literally dead, but figuratively dead, as in separated from the family. And so, also here, that's what Saint Paul is saying: we were dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. Now, what does this mean? Uh, the Reformation made this passage uh, central, or Luther made this passage central to the Reformation, in part because of this passage right here. Uh, Spiritually dead things cannot choose life. Dead people cannot choose Jesus. Dead people cannot do things for the sake of their salvation, because they are, in fact, dead. So uh, the, the, the implication here is that if you are in fact dead, then you need something outside of you to bring you uh, forgiveness, life, and salvation. You are completely dependent on something uh, apart from you and outside of you. So part of the, another way that we would discuss this and talk about this is as original sin, uh, the sin inherited from Adam, you were born with this, you were born spiritually dead and without life, and you need someone outside of you to bring you to life and to give you life. Question number two. 
I think so. I was. I mean, I know that we're going kind of fast. Fast. Yeah. But <laughs> nothing wrong with a concise answer. <laughs> Um, There are plenty of questions in question two, so this might take us a little longer. Uh, Read Ephesians 2, verse 2. Who is the prince of the power of the air? Uh, And there are a few more parts to this. Do you want to read them all now or... No, we Break can do it, it part by part. Okay. Let's do it part by part. So the first one, first part, part one here is read Ephesians 2, 2. Um, so you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And the first question is, who is this prince of the power of the air? The short answer is, of course, Satan. Um, but why is he called the power of the air? Well, the air is considered this this realm between you know earth and the heavens, uh, the realm where uh, conflict between uh, the forces of evil and the forces of God uh, take place. And the one who rules this power of the air is, of course, um, Satan. This is used as uh, – uh, Paul uses this language of – the uh, power and authority. In fact, if you translate it literally, it actually is the leader of the authorities of the air. He uses this language about leaders and authorities throughout the book of Ephesians and in other areas to discuss um, Satan and the, the realm of wickedness. Um, in, in reference to Satan and, and the devil, this also comes up frequently throughout the book uh, of Ephesians or the epistle of Ephesians. Um, in Ephesians 4.27, when St. Paul is describing the Christian life, uh, the new life we have as a consequence of baptism. He talks about giving no opportunity for the devil, right? Uh, elsewhere, he talks about putting on the armor of God so that you can uh, withstand the devil, that you can uh, extinguish his flaming darts. All of this is to say that uh, in Paul, this is really the conflict here in Ephesians, that, that Satan is the one who is opposing Christians and seeking to seeking to destroy them. So the prince of the power of the air, the, the leader of the authorities of the air, this is Satan and his work uh, who is working to to uh, tear down the the Ephesians and then and then Christians? So that's the first part. Read Ephesians chapter five verse eight. What happened to transform the Ephesians' walk from darkness to light? So uh, this is one of the common metaphors, or I should say, the ways that Saint Paul talks about the Christian life throughout the book of Ephesians is as a walk. Um, you'll see it happens numerous times where he's talking about walking, uh, and this is what we have in Ephesians five verse eight. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of the light. So. So the whole kind of summary of his teaching here in Ephesians is that one time you walked in darkness, well, one time you were dead in darkness, uh, now you have been brought to life, and you can walk, uh, walk in the light as children of the light. Now, where does this happen? Uh, how does this take place? Um, this is uh, throughout Ephesians. There's a, a reference here um, the, to to baptism. Baptism is that that moment in time when people are brought from death to life, brought from being dead to walking as children of the light. Uh, same also here with the Ephesians, where um, they were once children, they were once dead. Now they are walking in the light as children, as a consequence of this new life that they have received in baptism. Read Ephesians chapter two, verses three and ten. Describe the key differences between those who follow the prince of power, of, uh, prince of the power of the air, and those made new in Christ Jesus. So uh, let's go ahead and do. Uh, this actually started with two verse two, right? So let's. Uh, I'm going to read all of this kind of together, so we can kind of see how this is all coming together here. Um, once you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, spirit now working sons of disobedience among whom we all once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath 
like the rest of mankind. So what are the key differences here? What he's contrasting, and we're going to see the sharp contrast uh, later on in this section and throughout the book, is between the sons of disobedience and the children of God. One of the, the themes that comes up in Ephesians is this distinction between the Jews and the Greeks. And I think what St. Paul is doing here is helping the Jews realize that this is not the distinction between Jew and Greek with which the Christian is concerned. Uh, rather, the distinction is between those who follow the power of the prince of the air, and that is the sons of disobedience, and those who now walk as children of the light, right? So what is this? what are the key differences here? Well, here in Ephesians 2 verse uh, 3, we see that those who follow the sons of disobedience live in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, as I was thinking about this today, what an apt description for most of our world today, is it not, right? We live everything for the passions, for the current moment, um, whatever, you know, just think about all your struggles with sin. What is that? That is all about uh, conquering the desires of your own flesh, the desires of your heart, putting that to death uh, so that one might instead live as a children of light. And what does that look like? Well, we can jump ahead to verse 10. Uh, the child of the light walks in the good works that Jesus Christ uh, created for him to walk or her to walk within, right? We are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. This is the child of the light, the one who walks in these good works. And so that's kind of the the two key differences we have here between children of disobedience and the children of God. Now, the consequence of being uh, one of the sons of disobedience, following the prince of the power of the air, is that they are by nature children of wrath, that is, children who uh, receive the wrath of God. God, of course, poured out all of his wrath on Jesus Christ on the cross uh, that we might have forgiveness. But for those who reject that forgiveness, the wrath of God remains. And, and those, those who um, reject him then bear that wrath, uh, as it says, like the rest of mankind. All right. Question three. Sure. Read Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. What event does God show his great love for sinners? Sorry, I don't think I said that correctly. By what event does God show his great love for sinners? How does God apply this love to you? In other words, how did God make you alive in Christ Jesus? Okay, so Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So before we actually get to the question, I want to point out here that what we have in this passage is uh, it, it's commonly referred to as a chiasm. You have this weird phrase in the English. If you look at it, he puts M, what we call in the editing world M dashes because they are the dashes about the length of an M uh, around this phrase. And it looks like it's just kind of stuck in the middle. It's like Paul was talking and then he got super excited and then said, by grace, you have been saved. And then he goes back to his other <laughs> sentence. And, uh, and the reason we do that in the English is because we're not really sure what to do with what is called a chiasm in Greek. So in English language, when we write a paragraph or even an article, we tend to put the most important things at the beginning and at the end. You start with your kind of your analogy because that grabs people's attention and they remember that. And then you kind of go through the rest of your sermon and they doze off and then you bring them back in the conclusion, right? <laughs> Hopefully they don't doze off, but you know what I mean. So in English, we tend to put our the most important thing at the beginning and the end. Here in this structure, in the chiasm structure, the most important thing goes in the middle. And so you have these steps leading up to the middle. Then you have the, the kind of the, you could think of it as a mountain, right? So as you're going up each of the phrases, it's going up and up and up to the high point, which is at the center. And then you go down the other side and it shows how then each of these, these, um, these, these uh, how do I describe this, important pieces of information leading up to the 
center of the discussion is fulfilled as you go out, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. At the end, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus that you should walk, right? You're no longer dead, now you're walking, right? It shows how the walking is fulfilled, or the, the death is now, now that you've been saved by grace, you're now walking and alive. And this happens all throughout the entire thing. So the my point is, here in verse 5, you actually have the whole center of the passage. As Lutherans, we're used to thinking of the center of this passage as 2, 8, and 9, but the actual center of this passage is chapter 2, verse 5, by grace you have been saved, which is, of course, exactly what 8 and 9 says. But this is uh, grammatically, it's so cool. I, I'm sorry, I'm being a dork here, but the, the center of this passage is by grace you have been saved. So uh, what then, uh, to the question, uh, by what event does God show his love for sinners? Um, the event, of course, is the cross. Uh, Jesus is suffering and death uh, for the sins of the world. Uh, that is his great uh, act with which he loved us. Now, what, let's talk about what does this mean that that his death is an act of love. Uh, first off, we tend to think oftentimes, especially as those who have been um, enculturated by by uh, movies and Hollywood, not we think tend to think of love as an emotion, as a reaction you have with somebody. I think of uh, of course, oh, the zinging in uh, in the uh, oh yes. uh, Transylvania Hotel Transylvania, yes. like we zinged right, <laughs> and it's all this emotional connection. Uh, the whole point here is that God's love for us is actually not an emotion. Uh, God's love for us is in fact an action. And one of the great ways that I like to think about this is uh, my vicarage pastor was an amazing pastor and he said one of the things he would often do when couples would come in and one of the couples would say you know the married couple one of them would say well i just don't love him anymore he would say well start love is an action it's a choice it's you choose to love him based on what you're doing just as god has in christ chosen to love us regardless of all the horrible things we did to us did to him the rejection of him our sin all this thing that was piled upon him he chose to love us in jesus christ that is the great event by which he loves us and he bestows this love upon us in the waters of holy baptism these waters that tie us to jesus both his death and his resurrection so that we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins now walk as resurrected children of the light once again, non-literal, but not figurative. True spiritual death, but also now true spiritual life in Jesus Christ, as we have, as he says here, also in verse 5, made us alive together with, uh, with Christ. All of this, once again, by grace. We'll get to question four in just a moment. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching the scriptures with Pastor Roy Askins today in the March issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, are we ready for question four? I think we are. Let's do it. All right. Read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. What does it mean for us to be seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. 
So let's start with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. So we have just come off of this uh, great declaration, the center of the passage, by grace you have been saved. And Paul continues, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, and then also Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 um, He's talking about, this is also, of course, the great prayer, and he talks about how uh, there are, there is this work that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Well, if that's the case, what does it mean for us to be seated with Jesus in the heavenly places? Um, Let's uh, actually refer to another passage to help us get an idea of what it means to sit with Jesus in the heavenly places. And actually, we'll go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. That's Revelation 3, verse 21, in which uh, Jesus says, "...the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne." as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so he is, in fact, here referring to every Christian uh, who, who uh, receives his forgiveness, receives this new life in Jesus Christ, uh, who then, as a consequence of the waters of holy baptism, have been tied both to his death and his resurrection and have therefore conquered death, all of those will sit with him on his throne. So this is a reference to Christians sitting with him, the conquering and victory over death. Now, one of the things to keep in mind is this is not a reference to sitting on his throne to judge the world. Uh, our, our Lord does say in Matthew chapter 19, he tells the apostles, truly I say to you in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, here speaking of the 12 apostles, will sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That is not the reference here uh, in this passage in Ephesians and Revelations. That reference is to the apostles uh, given their role as his apostles, those who have been sent. Uh, the reference here that we're speaking about is eternal life, the eternal life we have in Jesus Christ. Now, this also occurs, as he says, in the coming ages. So in the coming ages, he might show their measurable riches of his grace. Coming ages here, we have a sense of, we call it the now and not yet of our redemption. We are both declared holy and righteous right now. We are true children of God, and yet we wait for this full fulfillment uh, that we will have in heaven with him. We have already a renewed relationship with God, but this will be full, uh, fully realized um, on the last day when we go to be with him. So this is the, the coming ages. It is both now and also in the age to come. And uh, actually, one last thing. Also want to point out his discussion. We talked last time about how Paul builds on this discussion of the new life as riches and all these great riches we have in Jesus Christ. We see it again here in this passage. Uh, We have these great riches of his grace that he has given us in Jesus Christ. I think we can go on to the next one. Okay. Question five. Here we go. Read (laughs) Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The chapter begins with the Ephesians being dead in trespasses and sins. It ends here in new life. Define the key terms in this passage, grace, faith, works, and gift of God. Why is it so important that God fully accomplishes our salvation so that we have nothing about which to boast? So let's read this passage. Uh, So many of us know this well. I think it was one of the first passages I probably ever memorized. Mm. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So uh, a lot of great Lutheran terms here that have, have come uh, become part and parcel of our Lutheran language. It's good to continue to define these so that we know what we're talking about when we say these things. So for by grace, what is grace? Well, grace is God's unmerited favor for us. That is his gracious attitude toward us. Uh, he, is, he is no longer um, uh, angry with us, but now he loves us in Christ Jesus. We have been reconciled to him. Uh, once again, the whole point of this as, as the passage 
passage points out is that it's unmerited. Uh, so again, we also have St. Paul using this language elsewhere. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, um, who saved us and called us by, to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. That is this, adi- this, this gracious attitude, this forgiving attitude that he has toward us. And then once again in Romans 11, speaking of salvation, he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The whole idea behind grace is that it's free, it's unmerited, it is his love toward us. So, for by grace you have been saved through faith. What do we mean by faith? Uh, faith is a living confidence in Christ's work, a trust in, in God uh, and in Christ's work that receives the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Okay, so it is uh, God, uh, our trust of what God has done for us. And then finally, works. What do we mean by works? Actually, this isn't finally, this is penultimate here. <laughs> works, there's actually two, two definitions of works here. Uh, in verse 9, not a result of works. And here the sense is uh, good works, good deeds done to earn salvation. That is not what, how, how uh, forgiveness and life and salvation work. Um, so that was a uh, definition of, of deeds is, is excluded here. But in verse 10, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are still to do good works, but these are the works that we have have uh, that we do as a consequence of our faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally, gift of God. What do we mean by gift of God? Uh, once again, uh, reinforcing this language of grace, kind of a synonym of grace and mercy, is that it is a gift. It is something given completely and totally without any merit. And of course, we think here of Romans chapter 3, we are justified by his grace as a gift, right? A gift is something that is you're given. It is not something that you're owed, not something that somebody is uh, due to give you. It is completely free, uh, given without any expectation of, of giving in return. So, um, let me can I take like kind of like two minutes to explain how this all fits together. We are justified, that is declared holy by grace on account of God's unmerited favor for us, for Christ's sake, that is by virtue of suffering and death, by faith, that is faith receives this gift of forgiveness, not by any works done by us. Okay. Do I still have time to answer you, a few more questions? Sure. Okay. Good. So then part two of the question is, why is it important uh, that God does the work? That is, uh, why is it important that this is God's work for us? And the whole point is that no one may boast. No one can say, I contributed in small little part to my salvation. No, boasting is totally excluded. If we are going to boast, we only boast either in what God has done for us or in our weakness and sufferings, as we see also in, in Paul's writing elsewhere. Galatians chapter 6, he boasts exclusively in the cross of our Lord, or 2 Corinthians 12, where he boasts in his weakness or in his suffering. So uh, the whole point is that uh, all of the work of redemption and salvation belongs to Jesus Christ and to our Lord and Savior who has has done all this work for us. Ready for the last question? I think so. All right. (laughs) Question number six, read Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, which we covered earlier, but we're coming back to it. Yep. Uh, We were made Christians for good works, not from good works. Why is this an important distinction, and what does it mean for Christians to be God's workmanship? So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we're going to read this all together with verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
In other words, uh, God does pre- create us as Christians, make us new, bring us new life, like bring us from the death of our sins, that we might walk in newness of life, uh, so that we can do good works. This is we are we are created for good works to do good works that He prepared beforehand. This is to say, you know, a lot of times you, Christians might get the idea, or Lutherans might get the idea that, well, we don't have to do good works, right? There, that we don't earn our salvation, so why bother, right? That's certainly not the case here. We, as Christians, we do good works. We are made Christians for good works, but we are not made Christians as a consequence of our good works. In other words, we're not made from good works. We are not made holy from doing good things, but we are made holy to do good things. That's kind of the distinction there. As far as the question behind uh, workmanship, uh, this is really fascinating. In this verse 10, we have all sorts of creating language showing up. How does God make Adam and Eve? He makes them with his own hands, right? They are his creation. Uh, the, the English word workmanship doesn't create it or doesn't uh, show the connection quite as well as the Greek word that shows this connection between what God was doing in creation, forming Adam and Eve, blowing in, uh, life into their mm-hmm. nostrils. This is the same language that's coming back here and made explicitly clear in the language of created in Christ Jesus uh, for good work. So what we're seeing here is a, a a new creation, a new Genesis, a new beginning that we saw that you see in Genesis chapter one, one, one verse one, we are now seeing a new beginning for Christians uh, to be his workmanship. And that is as these, these uh, new children of God to then walk in, uh, in these good works that God prepared for us, that we should walk in them. Do you want to put a bow on it? Let's put a bow on it. Yes. <laughs> By grace, you have been been saved. We we give thanks to God for the great gifts He has given us. Uh, this this all of this section is growing out of Paul's prayer there at the beginning of chapter one uh, that we would bless God for all the great things He has done for us, all the immeasurable riches that He has given to us, and then He does this great job of just succinctly telling us about what these great gifts and 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 is what this great gift of life and forgiveness uh, that is freely bestowed and given upon us. Uh, there is, it's not surprising then, you know, for someone like Luther who struggled with all the guilt and doubt that he had, that he would find such comfort. And in fact, all the Reformation fathers find such comfort in this passage that declares that we have been forgiven freely on account of Christ's work for us by grace. So by grace, you have been saved. Pastor Askins, how can we find the Lutheran Witness? You can find the Lutheran Witness in a couple of different ways. Visit our website, witness.lcms.org. You can learn there more about the Lutheran Witness. You can also subscribe over at the CPH website, cph.org slash witness, if you want to subscribe to the magazine over there. Very good. The Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of the Lutheran Witness. Thanks so much for searching the scriptures with us again this month. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.